0: This is the Bill Kelly
1: show podcast So the questions about LRT continue I and hopefully I think we're over this debate about whether or not we're even going to build this thing. I know there are still some people that are dead set against it, but uh, even Councillor Whitehead, who uh, seemed to be an opponent of it seems to have accepted that this is going to be done. Uh, but how it's being done, I think, is is somewhat problematic, and we need to get some answers on that, and and maybe there'll be some more clarity coming up this week. Joining us to talk about that is Ryan McGreal, the editor of uh, Raise the Hammer, and uh, always a pleasure to welcome Ryan to the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. How are you doing today, Ryan?
2: I'm great, Bill. How are you doing?
1: Top of the world. Things are going pretty well. I I wish I had a few more answers to what was happening with our our transportation problems and and our transportation plan here in the city. Are are you scratching your head like most of us are?
2: Oh, uh, of course, absolutely. I mean, and it's I think we have to remember this is a huge project. It's, it's a multi-year project you know, with a billion-dollar budget. We're not going to get all the answers all at once. This process of designing and implementing it, the answers will come out through that process. So to a certain extent, I think we have to be patient and recognize that these things take time. At the same time, I think we need to be vigilant and we need to be pushing hard to make sure that the answers we get are good answers.
1: I, I just get the sense sometimes, and again, my, my uh, overarching question here is: Who's calling the shots here? And I, I assume it's MetroLink or the province. I'm not sure how much of this is political, how much of this is is, is you know done in a, in a in a business fa- fashion. And uh, you got to ask yourself a couple of things like that about you know some of the changes that are coming up here and the impact it's going to have on on the downtown and the rest of the city.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, if we're talking about sort of this, um, the idea that uh, they're looking at, at replacing the two kilometer james north lrt spur now there's um there's strong indications coming from the province that they're going to be looking at some kind of an express bus or a rapid transit service for the entire north south a-line rather than lrt on that short stretch and uh, and i think i mean again we have to we have to wait for an official word from the province and they haven't said anything just yet but um, assuming that that's going ahead. I think that makes a lot of. I mean, it, it does make sense, and I think they're responding to three specific factors that have changed. Uh, number one, my understanding is that MetroLink actually did a benefits case analysis on that two-kilometer James North spur, and they found that it was a lot of money for a pretty small benefit. You know, whereas the the benefits case analysis for the East West line found that it was a lot of money for a big benefit, and so it was worth going ahead. I think that's the first part. The second part is that, uh, you know, the, you have to remember the province has been negotiating with CN and CP for access to use their uh, rail corridor rights of way. We That's know right, that. the yeah. government doesn't own that. Those are privately owned. And uh, uh, from what I've been reading, the negotiations with CP have been going a lot better than go- negotiations with CN. What that means is that we will actually get all day to a GoTrain service to Hunter Station, before we get it to the james north west harbor station so originally the reason the province insisted on a spur line to the west harbor was because they wanted to ensure that lrt connects with regional transit that's their regional rapid transit strategy and they want to make sure everything is connected but if they can't actually get all day go train service to uh, to west harbor anytime soon then and, and if they can get it to the hunter street station then the focus shifts to okay So now we have a direct connection from LRT to Hunter Street, and so they're looking at building a high-quality pedestrian boulevard along Houston Street between Gore Park and the Hunter Go Station. So it'll be a two-block walk between the two. That's close enough that that's effectively a connection. So then now the the sort of um, strategic uh, push to have LRT connect with the West Harbour has been reduced. And then the third thing, I think, is that they realize that there's an opportunity politically here to give a direct benefit to a larger cross-section of the city. And, I, you know, I think for a government that's sort of embattled as they are right now, I think that makes a lot of sense.
1: Well, sure it does, because you know the hue and cry that we heard from a lot of the counselors and, frankly, from a lot of people in community. Well, what's the benefit to the mountain? What's the benefit to this area, or to that area? Uh, I, th- I think if this is what they're going to do is go up to the airport, that answers that question.
2: Oh yeah, I mean you you can certainly make the argument, and, and I have been making the argument that there are there's an overarching benefit to the city as a whole by increasing the economic uh, productivity of the lower city by increasing the amount of tax assessment that you get. But it's hard to, to see that and to feel that. The other thing that I was going to that I would that I would argue is that the plan has always been that we're going to build a B line, you know, running east west, and a line running north south, and then three more rapid transit lines serving the entire city. So this has always been the kind of first phase of a long-term project. So it looks like they're building the first phase, and they're starting to work on the second phase at the same time. So I just see that as an acceleration of plans they're already doing, and that's a good thing.
1: Well, and if you look at the way other communities have done this, and Ottawa springs to mind, uh, Ryan, uh, they did their rapid bus system before they got into their LRT. I mean, that was in place and, and very effective for a number of years. As, as kind of a precursor to the LRT line that they're, that they're just finishing off right now. So uh, we, with the, the north-south section, are really kind of following that plan, I would think.
2: I think so, yeah. I mean, when you look at the east-west line, you look at the kind of ridership that's on there now, there's already strong enough ridership to justify LRT. The north-south corridor, and, and part of the reason for that is that the city has been running an express service since 1986, and they are a number of bus routes that all serve that corridor. So something like 40% of the entire ridership of the L- of the Hamilton Street Railway is on that uh, that east-west LRT corridor. So the ridership is already there to justify that big fixed investment. We need to do sort of what we did in 1986 with the B line and start actually building up that ridership on the A line and incrementally grow it up to the point where a full LRT makes sense for that one as well.
1: There are some ramifications to this, and Paul Johnson, uh, of course, who's heading the LRT project for the city here, uh, revealed one of them the other day that that I know a lot of people found troubling, and that was the possible elimination of some of the bike lanes downtown to, uh, to basically accommodate some of the, the traffic that's going to spill over because of the construction on this street right now. Are you concerned about that?
2: I certainly am. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had uh, I had a meeting with, with Paul, and we, we discussed it a little bit, and uh, certainly I expressed uh, my frustration. That, you know, what we're looking at doing with LRT is reshaping how people choose to live and travel around the city. And so if you sacrifice too much of what makes an LRT, you know, walkability, bike-friendly downtown successful in order to maintain the status quo of having most people drive in cars for most trips, you're really going to undercut the success of the LRT system. And uh you know so that's so that's 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 disturbing now one thing that was encouraging is that metrolinks um and and Paul have confirmed that they are committed to making sure that uh, the cycling infrastructure we end up with is at least as good as um, and preferably better than what's there now. So they're looking essentially at coming up with um, you know what amount to um, sort of construction detours for bikes which, uh, you know, I see that as a step in the right direction because traditionally, if a bike lane was being interrupted for construction work, it was just gone. To say, you know what, this is real infrastructure and we need to provide detours, that shows that they're taking cycling seriously as a legitimate way to get around.
1: Jason Thorne, who is the, uh, the manager of planning and economic development for the city, actually just tweeted a couple of seconds ago, he's uh, referencing a study that was done about uh, the, uh, the most efficient and, and, I guess, highest usage of uh, bike share programs in the United States uh, and there's some numbers here. And actually, if, he says if you were to inject the SOBI program in Hamilton into that, we'd be eighth on that list, which is pretty impressive, uh, considering it hasn't really been in place as long as a lot of, uh, what a lot of other cities have done. And you'd hate to see the, the, that network get deconstructed at this stage. What I think we're looking for here is enhancements, aren't we?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I hope that what we end up with is significantly better than what we have now. I mean, Hamilton's uh, cycling network, you know, and you and I have talked about this in the past, it's pretty underwhelming right now and the 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 city's uh timetable for implementing it is even more underwhelming you know we're looking at 60 years to build out a fairly minimal network plus giving councillors the right to veto projects and award so you know i think if the city is you know we can't turn around and be too critical of metrolinks for trying to accommodate our demand that traffic you know vehicle traffic not be too heavily impacted but then we're not actually investing money in building our own network so i think we need to uh we need to take some responsibility for that as well.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, city council talks the talk, but they haven't walked the walk when it comes to the bike program. I mean, and and has been a success, but I mean, I, I cancel can't take all the credit for that. You still need a trail, a system here. You need a network, and they they haven't done what they're supposed to do, basically because they've underfunded the program for a number of years now.
2: Oh yeah, and you know, and I've done some. Uh, one of the wonderful things about the Sobi system, about the technology they use, is that it actually tracks the routes that bikes take. You know, so it's not you know with the sort of the, the bixie style system, you uh, you you unlock your bike from one hub, and then you lock it into a different hub, and the system can only see where you took it out and where you put it in. But with uh, Sobi, the bikes are actually fitted with GPS devices, and so you can track the routes that they're taking. And uh, you know, so in the analysis that I've done, um, I've found that the the routes that had the highest level of Sobe ridership are the routes that have the best cycling infrastructure. So the Cannon Street cycle track, where it's a protected two-way bike lane. Running on the Long Corridor, lots of use there. Main Street, where there's no cycling infrastructure and there's five lanes of roaring traffic, not so much.
1: What about uh, the? Uh, I, I'll I'll throw the word in here, although I don't, I don't agree with it. The controversial uh, install on Charlton and, and Herkimer. Are they do are they are they being used? I,
2: I... You know what? I actually uh, I did an analysis right uh, when that uh, that construction was taking place. And and I found that that ridership was actually quite strong. We were looking at thousands of trips a day between you know, across the, you know maybe two three thousand bike trips a day on those streets before those bike lanes were installed. Uh, now that you mentioned that, I need to go back uh, and take the same period next year. Now that they're in and do a year over year comparison to see. So you should probably have me back on next summer to talk about that.
1: Well, let's do that. There's another element to this too, and I, I, this is again a concern. And and I I know that it, it it sounds critical, but I mean I I get the sense sometimes that that MetroLink's and and the province are are almost making decisions on an arbitrary fashion as opposed to consulting with community and talking to to affected groups about what might be happening here, and and, and now we're going to have a another variation on on our transit plan. I don't know what kind of LRT because it's going to be in all likelihood buses that are going to go from the waterfront up to the airport. And I agree with that. I I don't know what street they're going to go on. I don't know the impact it's going to have on those streets. I don't know the impact it's going to have on cycling infrastructure right now. Does the right hand know what the left hand is doing here, Ryan, when we're planning what basically is going to be the transportation future for this city?
2: Well, I think there's a few things to keep in mind. The first thing is that the idea of an A-line is not being sprung out of nowhere. It's been the city's own transportation policy since at least the 2007 transportation master plan. So if the province says, look, we're gonna fund rapid transit on the A-line, what they're saying is they're gonna give us funding to do something that we've already identified as a priority. So I don't think they're just kind of making up their own goals and ramming them down our throats. Uh, And I think the second thing is that Metrolinx has actually been pretty good um, about having public consultation and about being responsive to the feedback they hear. You know, we uh, we see, um, you know, that they added in a station at uh, Gage Park because of overwhelming public demand for it, particularly in that neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. Now we've just had an announcement that they're going to be adding in a station at Bay Street because there's a lot of demand for that as well.
1: Oh, that but was a no-brainer, they- really, wasn't it?
2: Oh, I think so, yeah. I mean, right through the, the centre of the downtown core, you want your stations closer together. You want to get the the maximum amount of, of accessibility. You know, it's, there's always a balance between speed and access, and through the downtown core, access is more important. Uh, but uh, but the fact is they they are listening and they're responding and they've already indicated that they plan to have some meetings in February and March to uh, meet with um, uh, members of the Hamilton cycling community to talk about okay give us your ideas what can we do to to give you a cycling network that's better than the one you have now you know it, while at the same time trying to accommodate the traffic needs that we have about building this thing so I, I think they have actually been pretty responsive and I think their policies are not. They're, they're, they're looking at providing funding for policies that Hamilton City Council has repeatedly identified as being important. So they're not kind of shoving their agenda down our throats. They're they're providing capital that's going to allow us to do what we want to do.
1: What do you anticipate is going to happen? I mean, obviously, the, the province, I assume the, the transport minister, Mr. Del Duque, is probably going to show up here in town any day now, we're told, and, and make an announcement. Do you think it's going to be bus rapid transit? Is that where we're headed?
2: I expect that that's going to be the case. I mean, we have a we have an express bus on the A line now, which runs every half an hour. So the next step up from an express bus is bus rapid transit. So uh, if we're if we're doing that, uh, you know, it's important to understand that any rapid transit system, uh, there are some some basic um, kind of uh, design elements to go along with that. One is that it's running on a dedicated line of some kind. So to be running in dedicated lanes. Um, it's got uh, stations with pre-paying, so that you have quick boarding and deboarding at the stations. And that way, you can get that kind of rapid, uh, high-volume level. We'll Looking at probably a significant number of, of vehicles, and uh, and so th- those, you know, if if they do that, then that is actually bus rapid transit. If they just are saying, look, we'll throw a few more buses on the A line, that's not rapid transit.
1: There's one other concern. I, I don't know if you heard the uh, the conversation I had with Councillor Whitehead just before you joined us here. Uh, and he raised some concerns about whether or not, if in fact this is going to be this bus rapid transit, whether or not Upper James or West Fifth might be the, the route for this. And, and uh, I, again, that's a new wrinkle to this. But he's also raised a point that I know you've heard many times since the government made the announcement about stopping at the Queenston traffic circle and, and there are still those, including Councillor Whitehead, who feel that this should go all the way to Eastgate Square. My understanding, Ryan, is that is still part of the long-term plan to extend it that far east.
2: Yes, mine too. I mean, the province, when they made the announcement, they very, very explicitly and repeatedly said, in a subsequent phase, we will be going all the way to Eastgate Square. So, um, you know, part of the problem with that situation is that you have a Councillor in Ward 5 who is adamantly opposed to LRT and will be a very vociferous political opponent if they try to open up the design right now to say, okay, we want to extend this to Eastgate. And I I believe Councillor Whitehead is aware of this political context as well. You know, there's one of the best ways to to delay a project indefinitely is to keep reopening and reopening battles about the, the implementation details of it. And so if we start saying, look, we insist that this go all the way to Eastgate, well, that's a wonderful way of making sure it doesn't happen at all
1: which is gonna the points almost moot though because it is gonna happen there eventually. I mean, but the province as I understood it, I had uh, you know the premier and and McMeekin on the show, the show the day the announcement was made, and they said this is just the first phase of this. It's gonna to go to Queenston Traffic Circle. Uh, ultimately, it will go to Eastgate Square. So I mean there's a, there's an inevitability to this, isn't there?
2: Absolutely there is. yeah. And so what I would say is if this is what we have the funding for right now, and if the environmental assessment is completed, and if the the engineering and detailed design work is done and it's ready to go to a tender, then let's do the part that's already funded and ready to go. And while we're doing that, we can start the process of designing the next phase. But let's not let the enemy be the perfect of the very good in this case.
1: Are you still concerned, though, that there are people on council that are trying to rag the puck here to delay this process?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of grandstanding going on. and And that's you know, it's an inevitable part of, of politics at any level, and it's not going to go away. And I think the important thing is that the, sort of the responsible parties here have to make sure that all the grandstanding doesn't become a distraction from getting this project completed.
1: Well, because ultimately, and I think we got some clarification on this a few months ago, uh, Council really just has to step back and let this happen. I mean, they don't need to vote on this. They don't need a reaffirmation on this. I mean, there are going to be some funding announcements that they're going to have to vote on as as this goes forward. But there's, there's really no, no vehicle for them right now to actually put a stop to this thing unless uh, an overwhelming majority of the council intend to do that. And I don't think that's the case even now.
2: No, I don't think so either. I, in fact, I, I would suspect that even uh, some of the councillors who are uh, kind of making noise about this ultimately recognize that LRT is A, the right thing to do, and B, going to happen. But they're taking the opportunity to score some political points off of kicking it around right now. Um, having said that, council does still have to sign off on the environmental assessment amendment yeah. because uh, the city and, and MetroLink are uh, joint, uh, basically parties on on developing that and submitting it to the Ministry of the Environment for approval. So, I mean, I suppose if council wanted to, they could start dragging their feet on that. But uh, you know, and I think uh, I think even then, they they are committed in, through their their, their uh, memorandum of agreement with MetroLink to act. Uh, judiciously and expeditiously and in good faith. And if they start stalling and delaying and dragging their feet, that actually puts them in violation of their own uh, previous council-approved uh, agreement to work in good faith with MetroLink
1: to get this thing built.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
1: on AM 900 CHML. LRT is front and center on people's minds. I know this is a busy time at City Hall. We've got budget discussions going on and police budgets and library budgets and a number of other things like that, and, of course, the city's own budget. But within that is the expectation that any time now there's going to be another announcement from the Ontario government about Hamilton's LRT system. Now, you may remember a week and a half or so ago we got the story to you that the uh, province or Metrolinks or somebody had decided that this link down to the waterfront from downtown uh, called the Spur Line apparently is off the books now. That's not going to happen. Uh, the speculation is that they're probably going to add rapid bus systems from the uh, waterfront up to uh, the airport. Maybe. Who knows? We don't even know who's making the decisions on this. So it's it's got some counselors scratching their heads about this. Uh, we're going to join Terry Whitehead right now. He's the counselor for Ward 8 up in the West Mountain and uh, try to get some clarity on this. Terry, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
0: It's great to be with you, Bill, and if you allow me a little latitude, I just wanted to extend uh, my, my profound sorrow and remorse uh, for those that have been taking uh, their life made short as a result of a deranged and horrific act in Quebec. And that as a Canadian, uh, we stand with our Muslim brothers and sisters.
1: Exactly. Uh, sentiment, I think, shared by an awful lot of people, and uh, it was uh, interesting to see the large turnout at City Hall last night and a show of support for that Absolutely. as well. All right, Terry. And we'll uh, we'll keep you posted on what's going to be happening there in the the next couple of hours. Uh, but let me get back to this LRT thing. I guess the first and obvious question: Do you know what's happening? Because nobody else seems to.
0: Uh, I probably uh, feel like a mushroom right now, so I'm not sure exactly uh, uh, what the analysis is, what the assessment has been done, how they arrived at the uh, uh, this juncture. Uh, um, clearly. I'm intrigued by the fact that there's an opportunity to enhance uh, a linkage uh, to the mountain, to the burbs, to the uh, GO station, uh, but it's very short on details and how we arrived at this situation.
1: Well, and I like the idea too. As a matter of fact, I I thought the the idea of the spur line when the premier announced that, when she made her announcement of McMaster, was interesting because I thought, well, that's the first step, you know, because I wanted it to, to to eventually happen, you know, that link to the waterfront and all the way up to the airport. So that's good. I like that. But I guess the other question is at what cost, because now we're starting to hear stories that well they're going to have to eliminate some bike lanes, they're going to have to widen traffic lanes, and uh, we're not sure exactly what's going to happen with this uh, announcement uh, at the same time too. So you you guys are getting a very cloudy picture on this issue.
0: Absolutely, and I want to make it clear to your your listeners, uh, and I've you know made this comment to the mayor, uh, regardless of the uh, talk about a line, I'm not letting the province off the hook, nor do I think the a line should take priority. In a billion-dollar expenditure on the LRT line, and what I mean by that is clearly from every study I've read, and 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 especially on the uh, alignment with the burbs on, on the north-south route, uh, this route on LRT should be going from at the very least McMaster to Eastgate. Uh, if I want to enhance the ridership and ensure that the taxpayers of this community aren't in, are not at risk, uh, it just you know it just it just it it, it, it perplexes me. Uh, that you would end up uh, at a node in the middle of an area that has no north south connections.
1: Let me ask you something, because uh, I've been trying to get an answer to this since the day the Premier made the announcement here in town. Who made the decision to nix it and put it at the Queenston Traffic Circle and to introduce and, and this spur line down to the waterfront? Uh, it, it certainly wasn't anybody at the city, and if they are, they haven't admitted to it yet. Was it Metrolinks? Was it the provincial government that said that? I, I'm, I'm trying to put my finger on exactly how that decision was made and by whom.
0: Well, and, and I think uh, clearly from my perspective, uh, um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of uh, Metrolinks. I'm probably more of a critic. Uh, I think Metrolinks is a, a good operation to do the best they can uh, to, to justify the expenditure of dollars, but I don't think they're in there. Uh, to look for uh, cost efficiencies and so forth. So let's get back to the question. Your question is about whether or not uh, uh, somebody interfered or what was the process that took the original plan and shortened it. Well, I think there's two uh, pieces to that argument. One, I think the province was listening and hearing very clearly that to run an LRT system uh, parallel uh, to their their new gold station uh, was counterintuitive. It wasn't meaning the objectives of getting more people off the 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 queen series of highways where they have the you know obviously major issues so they clearly want to have some form of investment in connection to that lrt system which makes sense uh... to the uh, new GO station uh, from a north south uh, uh... connection which didn't exist with the current plan
1: yeah and i i got an inkling of that about four or five days before the province made the announcement uh, ted mcbeacon who was that time the municipal affairs minister was in on the show and he said, you know, we, they may want to tweak the system a little bit. Maybe there's some changes that could be made that would make it a little more palatable. So that 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 kind of opened the door. But, I mean, I didn't know that it was going to be the city or the province or whomever was going to make this call. Uh, and and then, obviously, the other question, which follows right after that, is, well, then who made the decision that the spur line wasn't going to be part of this?
0: Well, that's a good question. I, I, I mean, we,
1: we, you want a made-in-Hamilton solution. You've, been, you've told me that on this program. I don't see that anybody here in Hamilton pulling the levers here.
0: Well, it's certainly not a broader discussion. I can tell you that what concerns me is that uh, when you sit uh, in the council chambers, and many councillors have asked very tough questions, we're still waiting for uh, uh, answers on a number of those questions, so we could be in a position of making informed decisions. We've asked whether or not uh, the route could be tinkered, changed. Uh, we've been told no. Uh, we've been told that you would need two-thirds vote. I mean, we've been told a lot of things. Yeah, and, and you know what?
1: The real answer here is no, not by you. That's what they're really saying.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. And then out of the blue, uh, there's a discussion about possibly changing uh, the plan as, as was proposed by uh, the province of Ontario. So there, it, there, it, it certainly seems and is concerning that who's having these discussions and why is it not a broader discussion so that uh, you know more inputs could be involved in this decision-making process.
1: Well what's that do for the support? I um, you've been a critic of, of the, the the plan here, you've been a critic of the route that was, uh, well I don't even know what the route is now because who knows what the announcement is going to be. Uh, it's And for somebody like me who supported the concept of ILRT right from the beginning uh, and others that are ardent supporters of it on council, it's got to be very difficult to say yeah, I'm still supportive of this because it's it's like trying to nail jello to the wall, they keep moving it.
0: Well I, th- I think there is some uh, unraveling. Look uh I will continue being a critic uh, and a sceptic of the LRT, uh, but I see my role as one that uh, we are going down this road. I'm not there to sabotage it. I'm there to ensure that uh, I don't leave the taxpayers of this community at risk and do everything I possibly can to improve on the ridership and and, uh, and any other decision-making that enhances and lowers the risk. Uh, sorry, enhances the opportunity and lowers the risk. But having said that, I mean, I said this before, uh, we're talking about a debt finance. Uh, uh, program for the LRT in Hamilton, uh, where the province of Ontario is literally borrowing the billion dollars. they're paying it over a four year period, sorry three year period at forty million dollars a year, which is equates to two point two million dollars this nine uh, billion dollars for this nine kilometer stretch. Now just to equate this for a second bill. our total levy for all conventional transit in the city of Hamilton is forty six million. So for forty million so when they say value, and it 's cheaper i 'm not even into the operating cost yet, and there 's only one taxpayer, so i 've always been a believer that there is a place and a role for these systems, but you have to, you don 't put it in prematurely and put taxpayers at risk. You need to really have the ridership and it has to be clearly demonstrated, not projected like the weather forecast to justify it and that 's my concern. <laughs>
1: So where are you on this now? I, I mean, you know, the, there's been some things that I, I I like the idea, by the way. I know you guys just, uh, council that is, uh, endorsed the idea of a stop at Bay Street. That only made sense. I'm surprised there wasn't one there in the first place, uh, you know, with the Coliseum there yeah, and Hamilton yeah. Place and, and City Hall just up the street. I mean, people I probably want to get off and get on at that point. It would only make sense. So that's good. Mind you, there's an added cost to that as well. Is there a concern on council right now, Terry, that – that that you guys are going to run out of money because I mean the announcement is I'll paraphrase what the premier said up to one point two billion dollars uh, with all the, the the fine tuning that's going on with this right now are you concerned that you're going to run out of money and this is going to be half a project or three quarters of a project?
0: Well, two things. I think the uh, the, the the dollars we're dealing with is somewhat inflated and has significant contingency already built into it. Uh, secondly, I believe that and uh, we heard very clearly. That if there are already concerns or issues as you go down the road for it, towards implementation, then this project will be scoped, meaning basically they will change things to bring it within budget, and they certainly have that. They certainly have that flexibility as well. Um, so you know, uh, stay tuned in regards to where we're going with this. And you know, again, I want to make it clear to the, the listeners, we have an obligation uh, to to do our due diligence. And ensure that, uh, uh, since this is, uh, I think it needs two-thirds uh, vote to defeat at this point, uh, that we do everything we can to make it a success. And that's what I plan to do. I'm going I'm to push for you know, ri- uh, park and rides where they're appropriate. I'm going to push for uh, the extension to Eastgate to and uh, in, in the strong north-south uh, in, interlinks uh, with the burbs and the mountain and, and beyond, so that we can certainly feed that ridership more adequately than, you know, in the middle of nowhere where you, well, I better take that word back, in, in on a node.
1: Yeah, you got some heat for stuff.
0: that. Well, and I think it's unfair because, uh, you know, if they were building this on, on on the Hamilton Mountain and they stopped in Duff Street or, 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 or in the middle of, of, of no destination location uh, that doesn't have an a east-west uh, um, uh, linkage, I would be making the exact same comment. And it's not about the neighbourhood, it's about the destination. And it's unfortunate that people want to uh, take that word and take it out of the context in which it is meant to describe the actual system. Every stop is a location. And I'm not arguing about the stops. I'm talking about uh, the desire to have a a, a comprehensive system that moves from a destination location to a destination location. In that context, that's where that word is appropriate.
1: And I understand that, and, and there are examples. I mean, if you ever go to the end of the Bloor Street subway line in Toronto, uh, the, the 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 west end of it, I mean, it's just a big loop uh, that goes around there. Around, I think it's Kipling. Uh, and there's not a whole lot of anything there, a couple of stores, and that's it. So, I mean, that, that's not the problem. But the thing I'm, I'm concerned about is the province themselves are the ones that seem to be changing their minds on things. I mean, uh, they made a pretty strong case and said, look, we want these LRT systems to go... And and connected GO Stations. And that's what KWs is doing. You know that. It's going from one GO Station to another. The proposed yep. Mississauga Brampton uh, LRT line goes from the Mississauga LRT station to the one in Brampton or to the Ghost Station in Brampton. It's a direct link. Uh here in Hamilton, uh they tried to do that. And then we find out that this 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 spur line to the to the lake shore down to our waterfront, they never even did a business case for it. They just kinda drew it on the back of a napkin and said, Yeah, that's that's where we're gonna put this thing now. Now they're talking about going up to the airport. Uh, we don't know how they're going to do that. We don't know what street they're going to do that. And I'm going to go on a wild goose chase here and make a wild guess and say, I'll bet they haven't done a business case on that either.
0: Oh, no, we, we're, we have absolutely no detail. And I can tell you that there would be uh, legitimate concerns on uh, being Upper James, being the uh, economic corridor for the city of Hampton with a lot of our major commerce, probably about 80% of our commerce, flows through every day so you certainly wouldn't want to create higher costs for the business in our community so it is concerning and and not knowing what the actual strategy and plan and design is at this point or what the business case is uh, and what the alignment is but having said that it needs to be done at some point anyway and if there's any in our, if there's ever an argument in regards to issues of congestion uh you know certainly the, the upper james uh m- makes that case
1: so we're going to get an announcement, uh, and we're told it might be, could be today. I mean, they say it's imminent, so who knows what's going to happen. Uh, and and it's probably going to include some kind of a bus service, some kind of a rapid bus service up Upper James, uh, and which begs the other question. I mean, they tried to do that on King Street and put a dedicated bus lane there. Uh, that didn't go over well with a lot of the counselors. They killed the project before it was even finished. And uh, i got to wonder if the same mindset is going to be in place if they decide to try to do something up Upper James now, Terry.
0: Well, two things. Uh, the implementation of that particular bus lane was probably as reckless as the Trump uh, executive order on immigration. Uh, the implementation was terrible. Even the uh, ward councillors will uh, clearly articulate that as well. So it was very difficult to get council behind something that we have received so many complaints in regards to the design and they kept tinkering with it but at that point uh, i think council had enough
1: well what's going to happen on upper james then is there is there going to be pushback about about bus lanes there
0: well I, of course there will be uh and that's why uh we need to understand what the design is what the implications are how they're going to impact uh traffic where the traffic no one wants the traffic to be diverted in back into uh internal streets or neighborhoods so uh, there's a lot of questions remaining to be asked. And whether or not even Upper James is the appropriate corridor, maybe West Fifth, who knows. But don't forget, Mohawk College will be a hub, even on that express route. So at some point, it will have to come off Upper James, if Upper James is the choice, and go down Fennell to uh, the Mohawk uh, uh, Transportation Hub, and then go probably on the James Street Hill, or the West Fifth, uh, Fifth Hill, back down to... Uh, to uh, the gold station. Yeah,
1: I, I, like it. I like the idea, and I like the idea of a link right to Mohawk College. I think that's ex- exciting and it's, yeah. it's exactly what we're looking for. But I'm going to tell you, and you know this already, but just for the sake of our listeners, if these guys are going to plan to put this this rapid bus service along West 5th right up at the airport, you, as the counselor for that area, you're going to take a lot of heat from the people that live up there because they're not expecting that to be a major route. That's not a major route right now. It's not an arterial road right now, and that's what obviously it would be if you put a bus line up there.
0: Absolutely, uh, without question. I mean, it is a, it is a current bus uh uh, line on, on West 5th. It is currently an arterial road. The question is, uh, and there's ch- uh, chunks of that, for example, South of Stone Church, that you have an opportunity to add an extra lane uh, uh, to, to accommodate the, uh, the, if it's a dedicated lane, without impacting the current uh, uh, structure for traffic. Uh, as you get closer to Mohawk College, it might be more challenging. But I don't think uh, I, I, that I'm going to prejudge until I see the, the actual design locations and impacts. And right now, I feel like I'm being in, left in the dark in regards to that. In that regard,
1: well, this is the incongruity, as far as I'm concerned. I like this idea of going up to the airport. I like this. That's fabulous. Uh, there are th- many people in this community that think that the that A-line should have been built before the B-line is. But it is what it is right now. But here's the problem. If you as a council, Terry, wanted to do something like this, you are required by law to hold public meetings, uh, get feedback, do environmental studies, all this other stuff. The province just waltzes in here and said, this is where we're going to put it. Uh, yeah, that looks like a good street. We'll do that. Uh, it's It's... it's it just doesn't seem right, which is why I think so many people on council are skeptical and so many people in the community are skeptical, because they don't have a voice in this.
0: Well, and I think that's fair. Uh, I think the uh, the reality is, is that uh, what hopefully they'll be announcing is that they're going to uh, provide flexibility based on whatever uh, numbers they had on the uh, spur. Uh, if they feel that the A-line uh, would be more productive in building the ridership on the LRT, then make that argument. The second piece is, clearly, uh, that there has to be broad consultations and a business case uh, demonstrated because, again, we don't want to leave our our taxpayers at risk in regards to the operating costs. We need to understand all that before an ultimate decision is made. We can't just have it ruled on uh, a pie and then... Uh, and then just deal with the financial impacts in this community. You're listening
1: to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: We've uh, reestablished with Mike Armstrong now, Global Nationals, a Quebec correspondent. Uh, You're with us, Mike?
3: I am. I'm sorry about that. We're we're running around this morning. We were just at a, a gun club where the accused was apparently a member, and we're heading to his apartment, so we're kind of on the road. But we pulled over now to get a better signal with you. Oh, database. that's
1: fair. Yeah, you sound loud and strong right now too. Let, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the suspect and uh, the man who's been charged in this right now. What do we know about Alexander Besanet?
3: Well, 27 years old. He uh, was a student at University Laval. Uh, he was in anthropology for a while, and then he changed apparently to political science. Um, there are reports that he would have been expelled uh, somewhat recently, uh, but um, we're sort of thinking we're seeing, hearing. Uh, some very um, sort of far-right opinions, uh, anti-Muslim. There was a group that works with refugees uh, here in the city uh, that said when they saw his picture and heard his name, they knew who he was right away, because it was somebody who had sort of, uh, they referred to him as a troll, somebody that was harassing them online uh, with his opinions. Uh, we also, as I said, we um, were hearing he was a member of a local gun club. Uh, we're not hearing much from police as far as who he is or, or how this went down. Um, For example, police aren't saying anything about the weapon. Uh, They're basically giving us the time that the 911 calls came in and and how he was taken down, which in itself is an interesting story. Um, 8.10, so 15 minutes after the shooting, he would have called, allegedly, according to police, he would have called 911, explained who he was, what he'd done, said he was armed, and said he was pulled over on the shoulder of the sort of uh, emerging lane to a bridge about 15 kilometers from where the shooting had happened and he waited for for police there and gave himself up.
1: So he made the call himself. He did 911. Now what, who was the other individual that, that we found out later on Mike that at first when there was there's the story of course as we know that uh, that there were two suspects we were told and it turns out one of them was a witness. how does this individual fit into the plan?
3: Well, we even heard from 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 witnesses that were there that there were two gunmen. That was something that was going around that people were saying. That's kind of normal. In a case where there's a shooting like this, there's, there's noise, chaos, confusion, and people tend to overestimate how many attackers there are. That's something you see in, in situations like this all the time. Now, what would have happened was this Mr. Kadir, uh, I believe is his name, he would have been inside when the shooting started, uh, at one point ran out a side door, and saw another person who was armed. That person was a police officer. But, uh, you know, all this confusion, he's trying to escape from someone, something going on inside. He sees another person with a gun. He runs away from that person with the gun. And that would apparently be why the police officer who was responding on the scene sees a person running away from him and arrests him. That's why that gentleman was taken in, uh, not as a witness, but as a, a as a presumed suspect. So his name came out yesterday. People kept saying this is a gentleman of Moroccan uh, origin and that that he's one of the suspects. That turns out not to be the case at all. This man was just a witness.
1: This is uh, something, unfortunately, it seems to be the new normal now, Mike. And it's it's awfully difficult, obviously, for media types to, to try to ascertain what's right and what's wrong in situations like this. I mean, you saw the tweet, I'm sure. Uh, many of us did that, you know. The, the immediately, these two gunmen identified as as refugees that just uh, landed in Quebec a couple of days ago, and uh, and again, that was eventually discounted. But it's out there, and it's it's very difficult to try to get the truth in situations like this.
3: Yeah, that that was a blogger apparently somewhere in the U.S., and I'm telling you, I'd like to buy a uh, an airline ticket and go down next week and say, just ask this person, like, why would you add that to sort of the public consciousness, you know, add that, put that out there. It doesn't make any sense. I don't know what it was based on, but that was somebody with, I think, 60,000 Twitter followers, and, and it exploded.
1: And and you you put that into the mix as you just mentioned with the let's face it the confusion when something like this happens and and you're absolutely right I mean we think of the the terrible murder of course of Nathan Cirillo up in Ottawa a couple of years ago now and and the subsequent uh, gunplay that went on in the House of Parliament and I remember those stories as as we were watching that on Global and they thought there were multiple gunmen around the city at that time. Uh, same thing with the shooting in Dallas last year as well. There's this story. Turned out it was only one shooter, but reports were that there were gunplay all over the place. Right now, it's it's pretty difficult to try to to nail that down, isn't it?
3: Well, yeah, our job's hard enough with uh, without people adding ridiculous stuff and, and making things up and putting them out there. You're right. Following the bouncing ball is difficult as it is.
1: And, and I mean, police were just as confused, you know, on the Parliament Hill shooting as as, as anyone else, obviously, because they they're hearing those reports and of course they have to respond to them, don't they?
3: Yeah, and even uh, that Nathan Cirillo, uh, when that happened at the War m- uh, Monument in Ottawa, there are echoes, uh, and plus uh, the the shooter actually moved like so. People thought there was more than one person for sure, and it's understandable. It's chaos, it's confusion, um, but that's why you, you sort of became, it might be one of the reasons police don't give more information. But at the same, same time, sometimes if they did help us out a little more. Uh, instead of protecting all the information. That's how it feels sometimes, like they're protecting all the information and not saying anything.
1: Well, and again, because right. there is some pushback, I know, from uh, from the, some media circles, and certainly on social media yesterday, Mike, that, you know, why aren't the authorities giving up the names of the suspects? Well, clearly they wanted to find out exactly what was going on. As it turned out, there was only the one shooter. But You know, we were still going with that old information, that there seemed to be two at that time.
3: Well, and there's there's... There's actually a law. You're not supposed to identify a shooter until the person's appeared in court, like an accused, excuse me, until they're accused. A suspect doesn't get identified. And a lot of people went with that witness's name yesterday because he was a suspect, apparently. But police didn't put his name out. He hadn't appeared in court. And there's a reason you tend to wait. And we saw a good example of it yesterday. The gentleman wasn't a suspect. And yet, five years from now, if you Google his name, I can guarantee you'll find old news stories naming him as a suspect.
1: Oh yeah, that's, that's still out there. Nobody, you know, they didn't take the post down. It's still there, and as a matter of fact, it's 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 being retweeted. and It's going on Facebook now too, so it's all over the place right now. So, uh, and, and
3: I'll I'll tell you that gentleman, by the way, has been uh, extremely uh, polite and, and explained that he appreciates what police did. They handled him uh, nicely. He understands why he was arrested uh, because he was running away. He he's uh, been very unselfish uh, about the whole thing. Very uh, understanding, uh, perhaps to a fault, and he might not realize. That years from now, this will still this may still have an impact on his life.
1: Mike, who's doing the investigation right now? Obviously, Quebec police responded to this. You know, Quebec City. Who else is involved at this stage?
3: Uh, the easiest way to answer that, I think, is everybody because uh, Quebec City police are here, provincial police are here, Montreal police are here helping out, and uh, the RCMP also is taking a sort of an. Uh, uh, I think overall, uh, the, inve- the the investigation. At the top of the, the chain of command, I think they've taken over because this is seen as a uh, obviously a uh, terrorist act.
1: is this uh, it's interesting that you use that terminology, because that's what Prime Minister Trudeau used, what uh, Premier Couillard used yesterday and a number of other uh, uh, you know elected officials, public officials mentioned. But in the charges laid against uh at this stage, there's no mention of that, is there?
3: No uh, charges can be added later. That's fairly routine and uh, they, the uh, Crown prosecutor did talk about that yesterday and said, you know, just because this is the, these are the charges today doesn't mean these are the charges. Uh, when, he, when he finally gets to court, there could be more.
1: Are, are they looking at this as a, as a one-off, or is there concern that there could be other people involved, other, other elements to this?
3: Police have said that they right now have no uh, information that anyone else is involved in any way. Uh, but I would imagine that every single person this person knows and hangs out with, is getting a knock at their door uh, yesterday, today, and as the week progresses.
1: When you peel back the layers on this, where does this investigation go? I mean, we know a little bit about this guy, the information you just gave us a couple of minutes ago, but his uh, his university and, and where he worked and blood services and things of this nature, too. But uh, the, the story we heard yesterday, Mike, that uh, that we saw on Global News, too, is, uh, again, the, clearly there seems to be some right-wing and maybe extremist leanings uh, on B B its B- 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 part even before this. But they they all seem to point to to the visit of Marine Le Pen from uh, from France uh, to Quebec City last year. I guess it was that that seemed to be a a turning point for this gentleman for this guy.
3: Mm. Well, uh, that's obviously police are going to be going over all of that. There there are several groups uh, in Quebec City that have been somewhat public in recent years, uh, more and more so actually, with marches and saying it's uh, with um they say not an anti-Muslim. They they just don't want Muslims here. Just Ugly, ugly groups. And uh, yesterday, actually, some of those groups were going online and uh, spinning conspiracy theories saying that Muslims were behind it. Completely ridiculous stuff. Uh, and I would expect those groups, if if uh, he's had any contact with them, they'll be contacted by police.
1: Well, we know Le Pen by name anyway, because, uh, again, the, the, the comments that were made during some of the terrorist attacks that happened in France last year, in Nice especially, uh, about Muslims and about uh, about uh, radicalism and, and, and things of this nature. So it seems as if her, those comments would certainly resonate with uh, with somebody like Bisonet who certainly had a uh, an, an inkling towards that direction. Anyway,
3: absolutely. And then there's the other situation. There's a lot of uh, uh, talk radio here um, is very strong, actually, in Quebec City, well, much more so than than Montreal. Uh, but very, very uh, strong views uh the, the the word it's usually usually used to describe it is gatful propaganda which is sort of a uh, radio trash can uh and it it's, uh, the muslim community some of the members that we spoke to yesterday said those people actually there's another gentleman uh, who's being quoted today um a security expert saying that those radio stations have blood on their hands that's that's how ugly it's gotten um uh, that that the sentiment the anti-refugee sentiment espoused on those stations at times is pushing people sometimes, uh,
1: this far perhaps. Well, let's talk about that in the context of what happened. I mean, you, as you cover you know, that province, of course, we're global, Mike. Uh, you know, we, we can talk anecdotally about, you know, the NECAB debate and some of the legislation that's been proposed. And it, it seems oftentimes from, from our standpoint here in Ontario, in southern Ontario anyway, that uh, that the the politics and the mindset is 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 more of of what the French government is doing as opposed to what the Canadian government is doing with with immigration and with refugees. Well, at times it might seem
3: that way, and and I would say that the you know France is is looked at in in the media more than in the rest of the country. Absolutely, and and so some of the uh, the problems that France has had in recent years, some uh, I, I covered Nice, um, and mm-hmm. it's kind of strange because I've never actually. It seems strange yesterday, actually. To, uh, I was in Nice. Uh, I covered Bataclan and, and the Paris attacks when Canada reacted to their problems. And then yesterday it was the opposite. It was seeing the Eiffel Tower dim its light, lights for our problems. Was, uh, rather strange, uh, kind of upsetting, actually. Um, so France, yeah, the, the, Le Pen is much more of a household name here in Quebec uh, than uh, she would be in the rest of the country.
1: What about security? With with what's happened here, not just with this particular mosque, but uh, but what's uh, what's the reaction been, and, and what what measures have been taken now to, to try to obviously uh, avoid something like a recurrence of this or a copycat or anything of that nature?
3: Yeah, police are saying that they're going to have extra surveillance at mosques uh, across Quebec. Actually, uh, mosques are actually going to be looking at how at their own security. Uh, this cultural center, Islamic center, yesterday. Uh, day before yesterday, had uh, the doors unlocked, actually, while they'd be praying. Um, They would lock the doors between uh, prayers during the day, but then when it was time uh, for for prayers, they would open the doors for half an hour, people would do their praying, the the doors would be open the whole time, and then they'd close after everybody left. That's, for example, another thing that the the people from the mosque were saying. Obviously, when we reopen, that's not going to be the case. We're going to be locking the doors. And, you know, there's no time when you're more vulnerable than when you are uh, sort of back to the back to the door, praying, and that's how these people were, were killed. Literally at their most vulnerable moment. Uh, we spoke to a woman yesterday from the community who was saying uh, she was I mean, perhaps justifying it actually in your head in, in a strange way, trying to make it feel better. But she said they were, at least they were killed while they were closest to God as they were praying. That's kind of a nice way to think of it.
0: You're so. listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML.